Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audio books. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a tremendous variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device currently in existence, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, you name it. And here is the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get Magnificence, the new novel by today's guest, Lydia Millet. And hey, just about any book at Audible can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a few nickels. That is enjoyable. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a great deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me in my apartment. This is you, wherever you happen to be. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Listy. I am your host, and I'm still battling a chest cold. It is officially, at this point, the worst chest cold that I have ever had in my entire life, and I would be deeply concerned about my uh, my life. I would be concerned about mortality if it weren't for the the fact that my wife has it, too. We both have the exact same thing, the exact same ailment. We have both had it for more than two weeks. It is not going away. It could be pneumonia, maybe, and maybe it is pneumonia. It is now at the point where my wife and I are staying up late and Googling things like tuberculosis and the consumption. And speaking of which, what is the consumption? I don't even know that. Why do I not know that? Is the consumption tuberculosis, or is the consumption... Simply the consumption. I don't know what the consumption is, and I will be referencing Wikipedia shortly. What else is happening? Uh, let me think here. Well, I sent my novel to my agent, and she responded by offering some thoughts. She offered some notes and some questions and some overall feedback. I also had three friends, three uh, writer friends, read the manuscript, 
and I received from them a variety of responses as well that sort of ran the gamut. So now I'm at the point where uh, I have to try to sort through all this information and make some creative decisions. And what I can tell you is that uh, as of today, as of this very moment, I am feeling as though the book is not good enough yet. Or more to the point, I feel like it has to be great, otherwise it's not even worth it. And I say that as a person who doesn't really believe that there's any such thing as good or bad in art, ultimately. Like, ultimately, it's subjective, and I understand that. But I also can't help uh, but feeling, uh, you know, from a business perspective at least, that it's an all-or-nothing game, this publishing business. And it seems like this is a trend in life generally, or recently. You know, it's all or nothing, increasingly. You either have it all or you have nothing. You either sell 250,000 copies in hardcover or else you sell 250. And with respect to my novel, I guess I'm looking for a particular level of emotional response to the writing and to the story that I simply have not gotten yet. So it can sound uh, pathetically needy, but I think what I need to see is some feverish, authentic excitement in a person's eyes, or I need to hear it in their voice before I'm willing to move forward with the publication process. I need to know that it can generate that. Otherwise, I don't think I'm going to do it. That's how I feel as of, uh, you know, right now, as of today. I'm not going to put myself or anyone else through the rigors of the publication process unless the book that I've written is of, uh, you know, high quality and generates a real excitement in at least one reader whom I trust implicitly. That's my litmus test. I have to have the sense that my book can exist comfortably, or at least respectably, on the shelf next to the work of writers I really admire, if that makes sense. And, and that means that I've got to write at a pretty high level. I'm setting a high bar for myself, on purpose. And that's the big question. And to be honest with you, I don't know if I can do it. You know, I don't know if I have that natural ability. I don't know if I've cultivated the ability that I do have well enough I don't know. And if for some reason I cannot do it, and that's just a fact, then I need to immediately cultivate uh, some other skill set that is not immediately apparent at this time. So I think what I'm saying is that I'm confused about what to do. I'm sitting here genuinely perplexed at this particular point in time, on this particular day, at this particular hour, and I am exhausted by the prospect of having to go in and make significant uh, and possibly wholesale changes to a manuscript that I just spent two years working on like a coal miner. So we'll see, you know, maybe I just need to suck it up. Maybe that's just the way it goes. And uh, maybe I have the consumption. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. 
The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Lydia Millett, and I am thrilled to have her here. She is the author of several works of fiction, all of them critically acclaimed. She has won the Penn USA Award for Fiction. She has been shortlisted for the Arthur C. Clarke Award, and her story collection, Love in Infant Monkeys, was one of three finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. Her new novel, Magnificence, is now available from W.W. Norton and Company. It is the third in a cycle of novels that began with How the Dead Dream and continued on with Ghost Lights. It is a great honor to have her here. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Lydia Millett, the author of Magnificence. So I'm in the desert outside Tucson, Arizona. I'm sitting under a ramada, we call them, uh, with a tin roof and looking out at my yard, which is full of cactus. So you're in the desert, like... I'm in the desert. Are you? So I mean, like when you live, when you say you live in Tucson, do you live like in Tucson proper? Or are you sort of like on the periphery of Tucson? I live pretty far outside town. It's about half an hour to civilization from here, and it's a sort of uh, niche in the national park with a lot of um, wildcat development. So sort of not planned development, but big lots with a lot of land. So I have about 25 acres uh, that I and my mother own in which I am situated. Wow, it's, it sounds lovely. Is it? I love it. It's my favorite place on earth. Okay, so, um, you know, in prepping for the interview, I, I read up on you a little bit. I know that this is not the only place that you've lived. You spent your 20s in New York City um, before moving out west. Is that correct? I spent some of my 20s, about three years I lived in New York, and then I also lived in L.A. Before that, I lived in L.A. Okay. And... Then I went to North Carolina where I did a graduate program. Okay. Um, I came from Manhattan to here. Okay. And so what was it? Like, what's the draw? Like, cause it sounds like, are you planted in the desert firmly or do you feel like this might just be a stop along the way and you'll go somewhere else next? No, I'm very firmly planted. I love it here. I came here, not for, uh, you know, not out of any economic motive, but just because I love the desert so much. And, uh, it's just, I fell in love with it, I guess, when I came here briefly for grad school for about one semester in an MFA program back in 1990. I just, uh, it was the place that I felt I had always been coming to. But that's, and so that's nice, when I had though. the chance, I came back. Well, yeah, no, I love it. I love it. It makes me happy to live here. Yeah, because I think like a lot of people, and I sometimes wonder this about myself because I live in Los Angeles, and I think when you live in Los Angeles and you like it, uh, which I do, I, you start to, even though you like it, it sort of makes you question your sanity. Like, am I supposed to like uh-huh. this place? You know, like I actually do enjoy it here and I think it's a good city. I, you know, I know that there are a lot of faults, but you can say that about any place. And, um, you know, I, you know, I love LA too. I do. There's something I really love about it. And uh, my brother and sister and some of my closest friends live there. And so I come pretty often. I, I do find the thing, I guess that bothers me now about LA, it's just the it's actually the traffic. It's so hard to get anywhere compared to when I used to live there in the early 90s. Mm. I used to, um, you know, I used to live in Santa Monica and Venice and various, like, Culver City I lived in for a while. And I'd commute to my job in Beverly Hills 
and uh, it wasn't hard at all. It just it was an easy it was an easy coast. And now I feel like when I'm in one part of town and I try to get to another, it's just a it's an odyssey. So it's, so it's getting worse. See, this is the thing. When you live here, it's like you, it's like you don't see yourself growing when you're a child. It's like I don't notice the slow creep of congestion. It's actually getting lots worse. I, don't, I, I, it, I think it's much worse. I think the city just has sort of outstripped its capacity for transit right now. Ugh. Well, I'm, you know, I, I think it's great. It's nice to find your place in the world. And I think a lot of people live their whole lives and never do. And so was it like – was it something that you were actively searching for, or do you think it's more serendipitous than that? You just happened to go to this place, and you felt a powerful connection to it, and that. Do you know what I'm saying, or is it something that you? Yes, said? yeah, no, I had, I wasn't actively looking at all. I mean, I had lived all my life in big cities, um, and and I'm comfortable in them. And you know, I love Manhattan, and I liked L.A. in many ways, and still feel a close kinship with, with LA and, uh, and I grew up in Toronto, which is pretty big too. And I lived in Berlin and London. Um, and I liked all those places. I, so I wasn't planning, you know, on becoming this desert rat country person ever. Uh, but I just, it just, it just struck me, um, in a certain way when I first saw this landscape, these mountains that stick up jutting out of nowhere and these huge cacti, you know, the saguaros we have that are 30, 20, 30 feet high or more. Uh, it just, I felt when I got here like it was a place I would be content to die. And I had never felt that about any other place. I never wanted to get old and die on the streets of New York. Yeah. But I can, I, can, I can live with dying here. Yeah, you know, that's interesting that you say that because I think about New York sometimes. I was thinking actually on the other end of the spectrum about childbirth and about um, pregnant women in New York City in the winter and about delivering a baby in a hospital in New York. And like, how do you get the baby home? Do you like put it on the subway? Or I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like... Just, yeah, everything is more difficult. It's just more difficult there in a certain way. Yeah. Well, and there's something to it. The logistics of life. And L.A. is different that way, I think. I mean, L.A. is quite easy to live in. Um, you know, it's quite comfortable and quite easy to live in, despite the fact that, you know, maybe it's not as sustainable as, as certain aspects of more dense cities. Uh, but it feels easy, and you can go get groceries easily and not have to carry them up eight flights of stairs, as I always did mine when I lived in New York. Oh my God, it's just yeah. an, it's an easier way to live, an easier city to live in than New York. But New York is, I think, logistically really difficult. And more now, it's so expensive to live there. You have to be a certain kind of person or rent-controlled. And, uh, you know, it's just not easy. It's not easy. Yeah, no, I was out there a year and a half ago for a possible job situation, and I was talking to people, and I was kind of scouting it out. And I'm a city person. I can do it. You know, like I'm not – I've been to uh, New York a, a million times, and I wasn't – thinking that I was intimidated by the prospect of living there. Like I felt like I could deal, but then I got there and I tried to, you know, sort of imagine like, where are we going to live and where's my kid going to go to school and how are we going to have enough space? And I like broke out into a sweat. I remember just like walking the streets <laughs> of lower Manhattan, just being like, I don't know how to do this. You know, like Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's really, it's quite true. And, uh, and even, you know, Brooklyn and satellite places like that, I just, I don't find easy anymore either. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think time, whenever I spent time in New York, like I was there when my, daughter was about one. Uh, I took a, a brief job teaching at Columbia for a semester. And we lived in Brooklyn, and I uh, commuted up to Columbia once a week. And, um, you know, I just, I, uh, I felt like time flew by. Time, time was all sort of collapsed, and the days just went. They passed so quickly. And here, here out in the middle of the desert, I feel time is slow. And uh, therefore, I'm able to sort of savor the time that I have more. 
Yeah. And then what about, okay, so because this is a question that I also wrestle with in the event that my wife and I ever do decide to leave Los Angeles and move someplace um, saner and smaller or whatever. Do you, did you, was there a big adjustment? Like, did you, cause like, it's easy to imagine that there would be when you live in this city where you have access to all this stuff. And then you think about yourself in a city like, you know, one twentieth the size and, you know, removed, uh, and out in nature or whatever. Did you find yourself, um, having like an adjustment period where you, you had to kind of acclimate to the pace? Well, you know, not the pace so much. It was more their sort of physical roadblocks to living out here. When I first moved into this house, there was there were you know black widows living in it. There was an actual rattlesnake inside the house, <laughs> and constantly we would have you know incursions from you know. And we still get scorpions in the house, even though I tried to sort of make it uh, scorpion proof. Um, I was bitten on or stung, I, I should say, uh, on the hand twice by a scorpion in my own bed. I had my hand beneath my pillow, and when I was sleeping in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden. This, was stunned by the scorpion. <laughs> and so there, there are all these like incursions of nature, and I'm not, I'm not handy. You know, I've not become a handy person. I, despite the fact that I, you know, I have a compost bin I'm looking at now that is full of maggot, maggot-like creatures, and uh, you know, I have, uh, I don't know, I, you know, I have things that are associated with country life, but I'm still not handy, and I still rely on other people to do the tough things, like take away rattlesnakes when they're in the dog yard. I have to call the fireman. And I used to use a, before I had children, I actually had a snake stick, and uh, which is just a length of PVC tubing with a rope through it. And you can put it around. You sort of hook the loop around the neck of the snake. And, and I had one that I actually used a couple of times myself successfully. But since I had children, I don't want to use the snake stick anymore because I'm afraid that it won't work out somehow. You know? yeah. <laughs> so now when there's a, there's a, we have a lot of Western diamondbacks, it's the most common snake around here, which is, you know, it's the most venomous snake in, in the U.S. And they're actually not, I don't find them aggressive at all, but they'll just crop up and really, really close to that. One time, uh, my ex-husband and I were in the watching TV one night, and uh, this was before I learned that you, you, you always have to close the screen door, and the screen door was open. And I just looked down as we were watching a movie. I looked down at my feet, and there was a huge rattler just coiled like a foot from my a foot from my foot. <laughs> and uh, I just leapt out of my chair. I leapt out. I leapt out of my chair and uh, went backward. And, um, you know, and so things like that happen out here. But I never had to adjust. You know, it's not culturally the same in Tucson, obviously, as it was in Manhattan. Um, and there aren't, you don't have the sort of natural, or I don't have the natural kinship of human beings that I had in bigger cities. I'm not... You know, I don't know my neighbors, really, after all these years. I've lived here for 13 years now, almost 14, and I still don't know my neighbors. Um, and I don't, you know, it's hard to find people who who are not alien to me sometimes in some way. And so I miss that sort of sameness of cultural, um, I don't know, backing that I had in in New York and, and to some degree also in L.A., so I miss that at times, but the landscape is so powerful to me that I don't miss it enough. You know, I just don't miss it enough to ever yeah. go back to. Well, and you know, <laughs> I I don't know my neighbors that well. I got to confess, and I live in Los Angeles, and <laughs> right, yeah, in an apartment. Yeah, building, yeah. You know? Well, you know, I know what you mean. I mean, it's all, I, I've never known my neighbors that well. I suppose anywhere I lived. I had one. I, I lived in a duplex in West Hollywood when I first moved to Los Angeles, and it just so happened that like my next door neighbors. 
they're like they were basically the same age and uh the husband you know it was a husband and a wife and like the husband and i got along famously and it was like almost like seinfeld where i could just like walk into their side of the duplex without knocking you know oh that's lovely yeah. i would love something like that you know i would love it i just it would have to be like a natural affinity i don't i don't you know proximity isn't enough for me to craft some kind of friendship uh, if there's no sort of natural common ground i guess well and that's the thing is that like i can feel i, I can feel guilt about anything because it's something that i excel at but like <laughs> you know living in an apartment building you, you're surrounded by these people and then there's an elevator and there's nothing more strange to me like as far as like social interactions go like i actually want to write an essay about this because uh it's a three-story building and there are these compressed interactions that you have with people on an elevator and it's like a weird, like 27 second conversation that has to like begin, have a beginning, middle and an end all before the doors open and the person leaves. And you have, <laughs> you, ha you have those repetitively and they're never really that substantive. And then the person's gone and you start to think to yourself, like, yeah, I should invite them over for a drink or whatever. And then one of our neighbors down the hall, I think probably had an, a similar experience. And it was like, you know, a year or two ago and she invited everyone on the floor over for dinner and she's a fabulous cook. And it was really, really nice. And it was a good time. I mean, it wasn't like it was a bad time, but it was also sort of awkward. And mm -hmm. it, it never happened again. And I don't think it, yeah. to be frank, I don't think it generated any real lasting relationships. And so yeah. you can't force it, you know? Yeah, I know. I know. It's nice that that even occurs, I guess. But Maybe you should, uh, yeah. go, you know, go around the desert and invite people over for a dinner party or something. Or, you know... I <laughs> I could. I know it's not so. You know, it's funny. My mother lived in this little house that on the 25 acres I spoke about is is a little house that's uh, that that she lived in after my father died. She moved here from Canada, and she lived in this little house. So it's probably 400 square feet, maybe at the most. And she lived there for a year or two before she moved, and uh, and she somehow got to know all our neighbors. I mean, she knew, and she and she found people that were really great and kind and generous and uh, not. You know, you know Republicans that that horrify me. Um, and 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 then she, when she moved, I sort of lost all that, and those people all seemed to disappear and move to other places. And and now I feel like I'm left with folks I don't really have an affinity with. Yeah, um, well, and some people are just some like your mother sounds like she's one of them, but some people just have that gift. Like they're just like people magnets, and they connect people, and they easily socialize. And I think writers often aren't that way. You know, even if and they spend the time, you have to spend the time, you know, which I feel is is always in short supply, especially since I'm a mother of two kids that I, I you know, and I work full time. And I, just, I always feel I always feel pressed for time. So so uh, possessive of any time I get that isn't spent taking care of people or taking care of work that I don't actually want to you know, use that time knocking on doors. Yeah. Well, and, you know, OK, so socially, um that's how it's that's how it's happening for you. It sounds familiar to me, even though I live in a different environment. But you know what you what you might lose because you're living, like you say, outside of Tucson in the desert, thirty miles from town or whatever, or thirty minutes from town. Um, you know, you, you lose maybe some of the connectivity or, or human interaction that you might get on the streets of Manhattan, say. But you do, uh, like you say, have these um, encounters with the natural world that you don't have in a city. And, you know, we get a little bit of it in Los Angeles, but it's always anomalous and weird when you see, like, the random coyote on the hiking path or whatever. But um, it's yeah. it's very easy to lose that connection, especially in a city like New York, you know, where 
you know, you're just in, in these narrow streets and there's skyscrapers everywhere. And it's, it's very easy to feel disconnected from the natural world. And it's, you know, I'm definitely a person who needs a little nature, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to go long stretches without it. And, um, well, there's great, there are great pockets of pockets of strange nature in LA, even though some of them are sort of exotic. My, one of my closest friends and my ex-boyfriend who I used to live with in New York lives in Pasadena now with his family. And there's a whole flock of wild parrots that I think I've, I've actually written about it, but it really does exist that just sort of flies through the trees in Pasadena and you'll see them quite regularly and they make lots of noise. And, and of course, they're not native birds, actually. Yeah. And there are plenty of, they also have raptors there. I mean, quite quite a good population of raptors in Pasadena that we see when we go visit them. It's just, yeah. I don't know. There, there, there are pockets of it in LA for sure. And it, yeah, and it's just, it's, I think it's like doubly strange. Like it's one thing to be out in the desert and to see a rattlesnake. Like that's, that's appropriate. And I know I'm in the desert technically too, but like seeing any kind of wild animal, you know, right up against this kind of urban sprawl is, is strange. You know what I'm saying? It's, yeah, it always it like, throws me back a little bit, but you know, Los Angeles has a lot of, you know, hills and trees and the ocean and there's a lot of nature close by, you know? Yeah. It was a stunning, stunning natural place once. And <laughs> there are still remnants of it, you know, I mean, there are real remnants of it. Santa Monica, like mountain, Park is a really cool place. You know, yeah. it's right next to all that. Yeah. I love it there. It's beautiful. So uh, I want to do something that I don't often do on this on this show, and uh, I'm just going to ask you to bear with me because I love this so much that I, I'm going to do it. And I want to read a quote from you. And uh, you, I think you said this once in an interview. It's fairly long, but I think the, that it gets to the heart of uh, who you are and what your work is about. And uh, I also wish I would have said it, so I want to share it. <laughs> Um, okay. So just sit there. I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to ask you, I guess, to respond if there's anything to say. It sort of says everything, so it might leave both of us speechless, but just bear with me. <laughs> so okay. You once, you once said, I think the Industrial Revolution was the beginning of the end. Much could be said about the apocalyptic tradition in writing. It's not a new thing. And yet our time is peculiarly new. Our moment on this earth characterized overwhelmingly, statistically, factually, by new things, new people, new ways, and the utter annihilation of the old. The crux of our situation, at least in the industrialized world now, is that we live in sprawling, insane abundance. We live in a frenzy of activity, economic, artistic, technological, scientific, a great accelerated efflorescence of knowledge and capacity, even in a sense of self-knowledge, which we have sometimes hoped would save us. And yet at the very same time, we are viciously, doggedly, killing the world we live at the pinnacle of knowledge and the height of human energy we have become supermen and also at the vanguard of the murderous army with fantastic disregard we kill off our less powerful cultures our less spoken languages our less populous peoples languages are being driven extinct all the time animals and plants are vanishing at up to a thousand times the background rate we kill off the beasts of the air the land and the sea we kill the plants the trees indeed even the actual air We are killing the atmosphere even. That's right. Even the atmosphere, it turns out, is no match for us. We reach upward in our killing. We reach for the stars. No ambition when it comes to killing is too great for us. We are undoing all the work of creation as fast as we possibly can. Finally, of course, because we cannot live in nothingness, we will end this sequence of triumphant victories over the rest of the world by obliterating ourselves. And we do this in a great whooping war cry of desire, of certainty, of self-righteousness, We say we have the right to do it, the right to have, and the right to kill. Having everything is our birthright. Killing everything is our birthright. This isn't an overstatement. 
This is just who we are. End quote. <laughs> when did I say that? Uh, I think in I think it was in as in an interview. I you know I was prepping for this, and it begs the question: like, um, are you a genius? Like that sounds like everything I summed up in <laughs> one giant paragraph. I, you should be proud of that. <laughs> Thank you. I'm I'm glad you read it instead of instead of me. Yeah. No, but I mean it's it's bleak, but um, I think accurate. And so I guess maybe a natural question, like here's a here's a an elegant segue is uh hope you know like how do you balance that knowledge or that perception and then also raise children for example or just get up in the morning you know what i'm saying like how do you how do you find yeah. hope in light of all of this um obvious destruction happening and this obvious um bad behavior on the part of humanity well you know i think sometimes it comes down not to hope but just to cheerfulness and that some of us are disposed to cheerfulness in terms of our temperaments, and I'm disposed to cheerfulness, even though I can speak like that, and I, I don't uh, I don't think there's anything factually wrong in what I said. <laughs> but I am, at the end of the day, as the cliche mongers have it, I'm, I'm always cheerful. And, uh, you know, I think hope is, hope is a tricky word because it allows us to evade things um, sometimes. But I also think it's essential. I mean, you can't live in a constant state of clinical depression because that ends poorly. <laughs> um, and so, you know, uh, I think what we have is just a, a disposition to continue and to and to wish that we may be proved wrong about some of these some of these beliefs. Yeah, that's maybe that's the that's the hope. I just I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> Yes, yes, I hope I'm wrong. I, I would like nothing more than to be wrong about my some of my intuitions or convictions about uh, about the direction of our culture. Well, I mean, and, you know, just to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit, when it comes to, like you said, the apocalyptic tradition uh, in writing is nothing new. The apocalyptic tradition, you know, among human beings is nothing new. And I think there have probably been countless um, very bright people in human history who have been, you know, certain that things were that the end was nigh and that things were Oh, that is very true. Yes. For thousands of years there have been such such groups and such individuals. So we have we are seeing what really is, I think, in concrete terms, this great acceleration that is spoken of. I mean I think that's a sort of empirically verifiable yeah. fact. You know, uh that we're in this acceleration and um it just remains to be seen whether we have the wherewithal uh to somehow be rational on our own behalf in the face of, you know, short-term thinking. Well, and okay. And so this will tie into like, you know, obviously you have environmental concerns. You work, um, in the environmental field, correct? I do. Okay. So when it comes and this is something that I've been toying with mentally as I watch like, you know, the political situation unfold. And I think about, and I watch like hurricane Sandy and you see all these like major weather events happening and you, you kind of can feel the encroachment of, um, climate change. And mm -hmm. what I wonder when it, when it comes to saving ourselves, and this is such a difficult thing, is, is do we have it in us not only to, um, you know, be, be rational, uh, but also to be rational in a long-term sense? You know, it's one thing to be rational when, like, the, the shit is hitting the fan. You know, it's like, okay, let's, right, let's, right. Go, let's go find cover. Let's go find shelter. Let's make sure we volunteer and give blood now because everything just happened. But, like, how do you get, like, the masses of people to act rationally – 
based on long-term projections and scientific consensus and that kind of thing. And like, that's what scares me is that it's just really hard to get, you know, a big group of people, um, you know, 300 million say, uh, to come to any kind of like logical consensus because there's so much uh, ignorance out there and there's so much misleading information and there's so many competing interests who have, you know, very myopic, I would argue, short-term financial interests at heart rather than thinking, um, wisely. And so, how do you yeah? How do you count it? And I mean, that is a question. Although I think it's more about power structures, I think it's more about um, leadership from power rather than you know the grassroots to some degree. I hate to say that and look like a bad lefty, um, but I think actually Sandy Sandy showed. I mean, it's just the first of many big storms, of course, that will hit the East Coast um, and uh, and other places. But I think it showed people that they need to believe in this, you know, this physical reality of, of, of climate change. Uh, but the problem is always getting getting the leadership to, you know, to win over really powerful interests that uh, that only value, you know, short-term profits. And, um, you know, that's the struggle. And, uh, and so far, since uh, the president was reelected, you know, we haven't seen... Of course, it's only been a few weeks, but we haven't seen, you know, a lot of hopeful change toward that. I mean, in fact, you know, the president just signed this uh, soon aviation bill that really is that sort of is really uh, yet another crappy, <laughs> crappy gesture against curbing global warming. You know, it, it says we we don't have to meet sort of European airplane emission standards. It's all very dull sounding, but so basically uh refuses to regulate emissions from from aircraft which is a you know which is a, one of many major sources of greenhouse gases so i mean already you know i was i was hoping that the second term which technically hasn't begun yet but would 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 yield more leadership from obama on climate change and um extinction and various other things where he hasn't been as strong as we had hoped yeah. uh but so far you know indices are not good um, for that, but, I mean, there's this massive power structure arrayed against the kind of really uh, structural change that's needed, and I think people people are coming around, but uh, but is the leadership coming around in time? We don't have we don't have much of a window here to act if you listen to the scientists. Um, we just we don't have very long to take these kinds of actions against climate change before the feedback loops are going to become, you know, uh, irreversible in terms of, you know, the melting of permafrost, the melting of the Arctic sea ice and Antarctic uh, ice sheets, you know, uh, Greenland, Antarctica. We just, we don't have, we have you know, a handful of years. And so this is a critical time for all this, for us, sadly. I think just surely physically, that's what science indicates. And it's a shame that we are such an anti-science culture. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, okay. And so since you, uh, and pardon me if this is like either a, um, a, a not fully realized question or just like, you know, maddeningly large and difficult to deal with, but you, you do entertain, <clears throat> excuse me, you do entertain, uh, big ideas, like big philosophical ideas in your work. And so I'm going to throw it at you in hopes that you can comment on it more intelligently than I can. But, uh, there's a notion and I was reading about this recently and it made some sense to me. That like from a, you know, and it's delicate to talk about because people have such strong feelings about capitalism 
and about the free mm-hmm. market and about the economic system and, uh, of the United States and you know that has built this great country and the greatest nation that the earth has ever seen and the most powerful economy and you can go through all the bluster but when you're in a society where uh, a capitalistic society for lack of a better way of putting it where everything is a market and j- just about everything is uh, commodified or whatever um it be- it becomes after a while cannibalistic do you know what i'm saying like is it I is, do. is it possible for us to continue on the current course um and to and to not modify our understanding of capitalism and also do the things we need to do to save ourselves like save humanity i don't see how you can do it like you have to at some point realize that the big business leaders whose entire existence is predicated on short-term profits are going to have to be beat back and they're going to have to not make as much money <laughs> you know like in their yeah, their, no, their businesses might have to, right. they might have to shrink or go away in order for us to survive and look those are bitter pills to swallow but far less bitter than the pill of extinction <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how one could say it better than that. I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, the problem with one of the problems with capitalism for for you know for our physically constrained natural world is that it is it devalues the future. So, and it doesn't have a way of you know it discounts the future basically. And so, uh, you know, um, we have to find a way of of calculating things that takes into account the the value of what we're sacrificing for the short term. Um, and we haven't really done that yet. You know, there are, there are sort of environmental economists who talk about contingent valuation and uh, willingness to pay for environmental amenities. They have all this really dry clinical language to describe how we should be able to think about the future benefits of, um, <laughs> of I guess, commodities, if you want to term them commodities, uh, that we're sacrificing. But no one's really really taking that seriously and it has to be taken seriously because you know time passes and the now is not everything yeah i mean and not to be not to be like pretentious or whatever but there's a there's two books that i read a while ago um that spoke to this when i was trying to like wrap my head around it and i'm curious in your work if like they are i don't know well known but um one is called the ecology of commerce and the other one is is called like mid-course correction there's some CEO, I want to say the guy's name is like Ray Anderson or something, but he was a CEO from the South who ran like a carpet company. And hmm. he suddenly had this like environmental awakening, you know, and he was in a documentary that I watched and that's how I found out about these books. And then it was like, and huh. I think the ecology of commerce was it, but I don't know. There are people, I, the reason I bring it up is that he just, he's an example. He's like the outlier of some guy who had an actual like moral awakening, <laughs> you know, like. Because uh, mm-hmm. it, it is a more these are moral issues. It's like what are we doing? Like you know, we're we're basically, yeah. you know, grabbing for all this money and and at the expense of our children and grandchildren's like future in a very like dramatic sense. It's just it's really pitiful. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. And you know, uh, it is moral. It is about morality, and it's tragic that I think the, you know, what's called the right wing in this country has somehow managed to seize what looks like the moral high ground by appealing to certain tenets of Christianity and stuff. When in fact, you know, I would call some of the, some of the impulses of the left actually more conservative in a traditional way um, than the impulses of the right. I mean, conservatism should wish to conserve, 
I should wish to actually um, be cautious in our calculations, uh, planning for the future, right? It should wish to save and protect what we have as we move forward. But in fact, that that is not any longer in the public mind somehow associated with with the left, and it should be because that's what the left wants yeah. in many ways. Well, you know? yeah, yeah. And the thing about it, too, is like I think about like the religious right and I think about people who are like hyper religious, you know, that's part of the problem is that they're, they're, they're going to heaven like they don't care, you know, like they're waiting for the rapture. Yeah. You know, it's like if this, if, mm-hmm. this, if this place goes up in smoke, no biggie. And like I don't have that same confidence. So I quite like no. it. I quite like yeah. it here. And I, I, I love the natural world. and I think it's worth preserving. And so, you know, you get you can get into an entire show about that. But. Um, no, it's, 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 at, at some yeah. point there's going to be a reckoning, you know? Yeah, there is, I'm afraid. So, uh, I want to talk about your biography a little bit. You mentioned, you alluded earlier, um, to your childhood in Toronto and you talked about all these fabulous places that you've lived. So, um, I, I'm curious to know about like, you know, how you grew up and how you came to be a writer and then also, you know, why you wound up in these various places and uh, I'd just like to know the story. So can you start maybe at the, close to the beginning? <laughs> well, sure. I, you know, I was born in Boston. Uh, my father was teaching at Harvard at the time. He had a, he had a very obscure calling. He was an Egyptologist. And, um, and specifically, <coughs> he studied uh, Meroitic, which was, the, I believe, the first written black African language, uh, ancient Nubian, basically, and uh, he was trying to decipher this language, which for which there was no Rosetta Stone, and which is still not deciphered, I believe. Um, but anyway, so he had this very, very specific job, and he was offered um, a post in Canada or in New York, and he took the one in Canada because it had field work associated with it, where he got to go to Egypt a couple of times a year. And so our family, when I was two, moved to Canada, um, and he worked for the Royal Ontario Museum and the University of Toronto there. And I grew up there, and I lived there till I was 18 and went to college in the States. Um, and then I've been in the U.S. ever since. I was always an American citizen. Okay, so um, you so you come from academic parents, essentially. I do. My mother, uh, also very intelligent, um, but she wasn't a, like an actual academic. You know, she was a librarian and a teacher for a while. And, um, and then she was a mother bringing us up in the 70s in yeah. a way that... And did, um, and uh, yeah, and so and so I did various. In high school, I went on this German exchange program, um, which I actually just wrote about for the Wall Street Journal. Where I had to, it turned out that the family I was living with in West Berlin, because the wall was still up then, um, I was living with them for I lived with them for about three months in Berlin, and then they had a house in Spain on the coast of the Sun, and we went there for the summer. But anyway, this family were nudists. And so they were members of something called the Freikörperkultur in German, so free bodies culture, <laughs> which I didn't know before I went over. Um, but so when I got there, I learned I, I too had to be a nudist. Um, okay, wait, and, wait, wait, uh, wait, wait, wait. How old were you? <laughs> I was sixteen then. So that's like um, that's a time like I mean I I couldn't do it I could I couldn't do it unless I was very drunk today like we like in, in my adolescence I was very self conscious like was that a, a problem for you or were you of free enough spirit you know finally finally I was not at all self conscious back then yeah. but now I would I would there was no way there was no way I would say yes to that now um, but but back then yeah I didn't you know it didn't it wasn't it wasn't so terrible I mean I just sort of did what I was told and uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't it was interesting you know uh, basketball in the nude swim meets in the nude, that kind of thing. Um, uh, basketball, but it was, basketball in the nude. I know, basketball, like that was the worst. Yeah. That was the worst, yeah, 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 yeah. With the, um, 
with the sneakers on, you know, the athletic shoes, and then nothing else, and the bouncing, <laughs> bouncing. That's actually what I wrote about for the for the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. The bouncing, terrible bouncing. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, and then so, but it was fun, and I got I got actually to live in Bavaria the summer before college. I had a scholarship to study German there, and lived in a small town in the mountains. Um, and it was great. It was great. It was beautiful. Um, and then, uh, you know, just when I was in college, I chose to use a lot of that time to, to go elsewhere, you know, in, in the way you can, uh, when you're an out of state student to begin with. And so the tuition is about the same as doing these exchange programs. And so I spent a year in France. I was uh, in the South of France for a year as an undergrad. And then I also spent a half a year in London at the London School of Economics where I studied uh, social, well, basically social policy analysis. I did comparative um, study of the welfare economics of Reagan and Thatcher, looking at how they, how Reagan has sort of modeled some of, some of, uh, some of his welfare programs on Thatcherism. And anyway, and so, and I also studied Elizabethan and Jacobian theater uh, while I was in London. It was, it was all, it was great. London was great. And, um, and France was great too. Where did you live in the south of France? Uh, so I lived in a, a city called Montpellier, okay. which is in Languedoc-Roussillon, the uh, cheap wine-producing region in France. And uh, and I did a lot of. I used to write poetry then. Terrible, terrible poetry. I wrote in French. I wrote terrible poetry in French. But you, but year. you know what? Anybody? I don't think there's an American college student who's ever lived in the south of France for any number of days who has not written at least one. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's so. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so, and I liked. I had grown up speaking French because because I grew up in Canada, and we had to take French obviously from a very young age. And so, and my mother spoke French also because she lived in Switzerland. And so um, I uh, I grew up speaking French, so that was easy. And then I loved German, and it was it was fun living in Berlin and and uh, Bavaria. And then you know, and I traveled a fair amount. I had an Argentine boyfriend, and so I spent some time with him in Argentina. And uh, yeah, I mean, I did a lot of traveling back then, which I haven't done since I had children. I've not been, I've really not been outside the U.S. I think, except to go down to Mexico, which is you know where I live is about forty five minutes from the border. Uh huh. So, uh, so, so I've taken the kids down there a couple of times. Um, traveling, gets a generally, lot, it gets a lot more complicated with children, at least at young. Yeah, children, it does. Know. It does. Just logistically, becomes sort of a nightmare. Just the gear, just the gear that I have to like. Oh, the gear. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the this paperwork, and yeah, especially in the post nine eleven world, yeah. with the all the passports and the blah blah. I don't know, and the and the long lines of the security. Um, you know, outposts between the U.S. and Mexico. One time I had to wait for 10 hours um, to get across the border with my kids in the car. Jesus. So that sort of put a damper on on uh, visits to Mexico. Yeah, that'll do it, right? Yeah, yeah, sort of. So so after college, I didn't know what to do, and so I, for half a semester, for half a year, I, t- I did a, this writing program here in Tucson, which is what, what introduced me to the desert. And I quit that and went to L.A. I thought that I might be a screenwriter, Although I was already writing books, but I thought maybe I could make a living being a screenwriter, which was a foolish thought. It turns out, 
Yeah, I've, I ha- um, I've entertained that thought multiple times. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I've written several screenplays, and uh, curiously, none has sold. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, and, and but I ended up working for uh, for a Hustler magazine. I was, you know, a copy editor for for Larry Flint for three years in L.A. Did you ever see him? Um, Did you ever deal with him? You know, I didn't really. I saw him, yes, but I didn't deal with him. Those in those days, he wasn't really on the scene. Okay. Um, it was. It was a. It was a hard time for him, I guess, physically. And actually, he came, he had some surgery, I guess, at Duke Medical or something after I left and, and sort of came back onto the scene. But when I was there, he would occasionally come to the office in his gold-plated wheelchair. And um, when we were alerted that he was coming, we would dive under our desks and shut our office doors. Because <laughs> we figured that if, if we hid uh, and he didn't know who we are, then, then uh, he wouldn't take it into his, into his uh, head to fire us. Right. So we wanted to stay anonymous, you know, um, and uh, other people were running the company then. Well, so how did you wind up there? Like, was just some sort of random thing? Oh, it was such a hard time. When I first moved there, I just, I couldn't get a job. It was the Persian Gulf War, and it was pretty low time in the economy, at least for L.A. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I didn't, I was just a college kid, and it was hard to get, it was hard to get work, and I needed work. And so I had one job working for a screenplay agent, actually, in Beverly Hills, um, uh, where I was paid, I remember exactly how much, I was paid two twenty-five a week uh, before taxes, and that was for working, like, 60 hours. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, and, and then, but I was fired from that job, well, laid off, I guess, because it collapsed, the whole business collapsed. And then I took a job working for a, a former producer of after-school specials in Studio City, and uh, and she threw one time she threw this five gallon bottle of sparklets sparklets bottle at my head, although it was empty it was empty at the time um, oh. but or almost empty but it crashed against the wall I remember this and I had to put the cover on her Jaguar every day that was my main job was to go and put this white cover on her Jag um, and then so I can't actually remember if she if I was laid off from that or if I just got the the uh, Larry Flint job to leave that job, you know, but, um, but I took a copy test. I just met someone who, who was leaving a job there and she said, Oh, why don't you go take the copy test? And so I did. And I was, I became a copy editor at LSP in Beverly Hills. And I was first on a gun and knife magazine, which were regarded as the, and that was the, you know, that was where you started, right? That was the right. sort of, you're not, just, you're not just going to start at Hustler. You're not just going to start there. You gotta... Right, you're not going to start at that sort of pinnacle, <laughs> not at that pinnacle. Uh, so I was the copy editor of SWAT for the Prepared American, a gun magazine, and Fighting Knives, America's Most Incisive Cutlery Publication. <laughs> uh, so, I started, so I started there, and, um, and then I went to, um, eventually to Hustler, which was, you know, the flagship, and uh, Hustler's Busty Beauties for the... For the um, Connoisseur of a large-breasted woman, uh, and uh, some various other publications. But I was the copy editor of Hustler for a couple of years, and I did a lot of work of my own during that time. Okay, okay. And then I, I guess I got that guy. I got the contract for my first novel while I was working at Hustler, and decided that in a couple of years it was going to take before the book came out. I would go back to grad school in environmental policy, basically, because I already had these interests. Um, I had interests always. Uh, you know, I'd grown up sort of just loving animals and wanting to, to save animals, <laughs> basically. And so I thought I'd get a degree in that and see if I could make money doing that. Uh, and so I went back to grad school waiting for my first book to come out, and I moved to North Carolina 
um, to do that. It was Duke, uh, Duke University. Okay, okay. So seen, seen as a betrayal by my, many of my uh, friends who I'd gone to to UNC Chapel Hill with as an undergrad. Apparently, there was some sort of sports rivalry between the two. <laughs> right, schools. the basketball thing, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. Which I had no knowledge, um, but yeah. Okay, so let's let's talk about this because I want to talk like your skill set is uh, wider, I think, than most writers I know. And you had uh, you already had a deal for a book when you went to get your master's degree um, in, and forgive me for not remembering the degree, environmental. Oh, so it's just so boring to even say. It was like, uh, it was a master's of environmental management in resource economics and policy, I think was the name of it. Okay. So it's so boring that everyone falls asleep by the time I get to the end of this. <laughs> it is, it's lengthy, but you know, it, it says what it is. And, uh, Soporific. yeah. So, so, okay. So most writers, I think have, uh, a narrower, field of vision. It's like, I'm just going to be a writer somehow, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to support that habit. Like, were you thinking strategically about like, okay, how can I make a living doing something? And obviously it sounds like you were trying to make a living doing something that you were actually interested in and passionate about, but also finding a way to subsidize the writing. And so I want to... Yeah, so I didn't think, by that time I thought, having met with, uh, you know, failure in the realm of screenplay writing, I thought I won't try to make my living writing. I will try to make my living doing something I love, and then I will write books, and I won't worry about how much, you know, how much money I make doing that. Which takes a lot of the pressure off. That's a smart way to go about it. And a um, couple questions. First of all, when did you know that you were going to be a writer? Like, when did that start to become a reality for you? Was it something that you had in your head from the time you were a little girl, or was it something that, you know, dawned on you in college or post-college or that, that magic? It was in college. It was in college. You know, I had lovely teachers. Um, at uh, at uh, Chapel Hill, lovely writing teachers and so forth, and I loved writing then. And I had I had actually up until then thought that I was going to be an opera singer. I sang classically for many years and trained from the time I was fourteen till till sometime in college because I also trained in college. And when I was in France, I studied really hard. I sang a lot that year in France. Um, but then uh, I realized that I didn't have the personality really to 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 be an opera singer would you care um, would you care to sing a song for us right now or is it, is it <laughs> i would so not i would so not yeah. i don't think i can sing anymore really i can't sing that way anymore but uh and also i'm terribly frightened of it i mean it actually was a thing where when i had to give a recital i would become so nervous that my body would almost break down i would just i would be so nervous i would be shaking like uncontrollably and stuff before a recital and so i realized i just didn't have i mean and, and some people just get through that i guess but I already, I had just grown up reading books obsessively and always been a huge reader. And, um, and I sort of realized that was my, that was my, that was my place. Okay. So let's, this is another, like, this leads me to another question I have for you because, um, in reading you and reading about you, it's clear that you've done the reading and not all writers do the reading. Like, I feel like I need to to read more and I feel like I wish I would have read, more obsessively in my youth, especially because of the time that youth affords you to do such things like in your student days and whatnot. And then, you know, now that I'm in my adult life and I've got a child and I've got uh, other work concerns and all these different things to juggle, it gets more difficult to find the time to do all the different things you want to do. So uh, like, A, how do you know, how do you do the reading? Like, and, and how do you, how did you do it then? And then how do you do it today? Has it lessened? And then B, with uh, you know your your day job or whatever, and the work that you do on the environmental front, how do you balance it all? Like it, you're doing so much, and you're very prolific as a 
writer of fiction. You're putting out books regularly. So please explain. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a good, it's a good question. I, I never feel like you can read enough. You know, there's never enough, uh, there's never enough time to read all the books that deserve to be read. Um, I am still a voracious reader for sure. And I'm a huge library goer and, um, for me to actually buy someone's book, that's, that's a huge compliment for me because <laughs> I'm just devoted to libraries. Um, but, uh, you know, one thing was we didn't have a TV growing up in my house um, because my parents were opposed to them. And so I always had books. That was always where I went um, for everything, for sustenance, you know. And, um, and so that was good. Of course, now I'm addicted to TV as a grown-up. And every night when my kids go to sleep, I'm in front of the television just just, just ogling it, uh, you know, so <laughs> Hug- I can't get enough. Hugging it. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, basically. Um, so I'm hugely addicted to television now and that form of narrative. Um, but I still read a huge amount. I'm always, you know, several books a week, and I'm constantly reading. And uh, like when I exercise, if you can even call it exercise on the machine to the gym, I'm reading a book the whole time, or I'm reading during my lunch hour, which often is just 20 minutes, but I'm reading, reading all the time. So I love to read. I love to read. I just always loved it. And um and uh, all kinds of things, you know, a pretty, pretty diverse reader. Uh, read a lot of, I read a lot of genre, I read a lot of um, young adult fiction, and I read, uh, you know, trickier stuff, and trickier stuff in, uh, you know, grown-up fiction. Um, and I love, yeah, I just love so much in that world. Um, but yeah, the balancing, I don't know, I, it's hard to say that I'm balanced. It's really hard to find time to do my my work. Um, so, so when do you nowadays. do it? Do you have a ritual? I mean, are you a morning writer? No, I wish. Oh God, I wish, but you know, I have, I, so basically at my day job, I edit press releases and uh, all kinds of really time sensitive documents that go out from the nonprofit that I work for, which is run by my ex-husband. He founded it. And, you know, we have about 60 scientists and, and lawyers working for us. And, and I'm in charge of reading the press releases and correcting all the you know, the grammar, much as I did at Hustler. Uh-huh. Um, I'm a copy editor and I'm a, you know, message handler. I'm a, I control the message. Um, and uh, and that stuff is really, you know, you have to do it right then. And so I'm really lucky if I get half an hour to myself to do to do work on a book in the course of a day. And I just have to write really fast and, um, you know, and then I have to go back and pick over it later maybe in front of the television or whatever and, and tinker with the sentences and see if I'm repulsed by it or not. And, wow. um, so no. it's really, it's really tough. You know? And, and I'm, I get really tired being a mother of young children. I have a almost nine year old and almost five year old. And, um, you know, and, uh, I get really tired. So I'm so tired at night that it's hard to go over my work. Yeah. So and, yeah, it's really tricky. It's tricky to find time for but, me now. But you know, it, like I, I've, you know, I hear you say that and I'm like reflecting back on other conversations that I've had with writers and there's something to be said for only having a very small amount of time to do it because that's it and that's your shot and you, you, you know what I'm saying? And, and whereas if you have oodles of time, it can almost be a hindrance to your productivity in some, you know, uh, ironic way because is that true yeah i don't know i haven't had oodles of time for so long now i don't yeah i don't even i guess you know it's sort of like growing up rich or something you can you know if you grow up there's so many troubles uh, for people who grow up really wealthy i think psychologically and and uh you know those people are often very passive and often have trouble finding direction and stuff and maybe it's like that with time as well maybe time is like money for the rich 
Um, you know, maybe it's, there can be too much of it, I guess. But, you know, so many writers work in academia, right? I mean, that's mainly what sort of literary writers do to get by. Right. And I never envy those folks because it seems to me their time gets just eaten up by, um, by their, I guess it's the, the social, the culture of academia and the administration of it and, and the politics of it. And their time gets eaten up in a way that's really unpleasant to me, in a way that I don't want to participate in. Um, I mean, I'd rather have, you know, I, I choose to have a job that requires this very straightforward expenditure of time and that doesn't sort of leak into into all that I do. Um I don't know. It seems to me very quite hard, actually, to be an academic writer. Well, yeah, you care. But I know lots of, lots of people choose it, right? So maybe it's not that hard. I, I know. you know, I, I did it for five years, and it was it's tough, you know, because you carry home a stack of you know thirty five short stories that you've got like you know twenty four hours to it's and you know it just it it drains the very I know. Ener- it drains the very energy that does. you need for your own work, you know. It does. It does, and also I don't like being exposed to constant mediocrity. In writing, I really don't like it. I'd like to be exposed to competent writing in whatever form, and I find that when and there always there are some brilliant students that you have, but but most most student writing is not. You know, and mine wasn't when I was a student. I mean, you know, it's not a terrible indictment or anything, but it's mostly just mediocre in this particular way, and it's really I find it to be uh, deadening. Have yeah. to read that stuff all the time. Yeah, and the other thing too is that, like, when you're trying to evaluate it, just like you said, like if I, um, you know, if somehow time were warped and I would have you as a student in my class, and your early work um, would have been mediocre, just like everybody's pretty much is, um, you know, I'm sure I would have seen talent, you know, because clearly you have it and everything. But I found myself ultimately thinking, you know, there are a lot of writers uh, of great achievement who started terribly. And so mm-hmm. what do you say? Like, you know, like you're just going to give somebody an F and like demoralize them or tell them that they suck when really right. they're just getting started. So it's almost like it left me paralyzed, unsure of what to say. Like, listen, if you, yeah. like, if you like to do this, keep going, you know, like this doesn't work, right. this, this kind of works, but you know, it, it just, it left me not sure what to say. <laughs> no, exactly. And, and actually, uh, when, when I briefly had stints as a teacher and I like to have, I like to be a teacher briefly. I just can't take it in the long haul. Yeah. But, but I like interacting with students. I like being in the classroom and stuff, but I just don't like having to read all the lame work. Um, but but it's actually easier with people who are really gifted or people who are terrible than it is with the mediocre students. Right. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's easier to, you can easily, something that's really good and has a lot of talent behind it, you can speak on a certain level to that student, and I'm comfortable with that. Or if the student's really bad, it's easy to point out, what the flaws are and to say, look, here is bad and here is bad and here's why. But it's all the stuff in between that I think is deadening. It's stultifying finally. You know, mm-hmm. it's sort of like, eh, why are you doing this? You know, why are you doing this? Do you have some false notion that being a writer will make you immortal? Is that, <laughs> is that the idea? You know, do you want to be a writer more than you want to write? You know, because it seems like there's some of that out there. Oh, I, um, I think there's a lot of that. I think even in the MFA world, there's a lot of that, you know. And- there is a lot of it. And it's folks, sometimes, I guess, what bothers me is is that sometimes people want to be writers without wanting to read. You know, and, and I think you, even if you don't have time enough to read, it's always a struggle, right? It's always a struggle, especially when you have children, to have time enough to read. Right. But if you're young and, you know, you're single and you're, 
you're trying to be a writer, why why wouldn't you read? Why would you not read? I mean, because it's what you do, right? You know, it's like a way, uh, that, that's what I don't get. You know, our students who, who want to write without reading. Or, or without writing. <laughs> you know, it's, mm-hmm. like, it's like a lifestyle. And I think like, I have a theory about it. And, uh, you know, I don't think it tells the whole tale, but I do think that it, people sometimes gravitate towards writing because, they, you know, they imagine it as a certain lifestyle and they imagine it maybe as like, you know, the aggrandizement of... It's a way to be famous or something, but uh, I know and it's so not the right way to be famous. No, in our culture. no but it, it's, it's the wrongest way there is. It's terrible. You're yeah. like, oh, no, just be, you know, be a pop singer or something, you know. But that, no, but or be be no one, be a housewife of of New Jersey or something. I mean, to, you know, uh, it's just the wrong tack, isn't it? Finally, it is. But that's my theory: is that it's it's what people who don't have a musical gift do. Like, you know what I'm saying? Because I think so many of us, if we <laughs> if we had our, if I had my choice, if I could somehow be uh, a rock star or make music like that seems to me like the most satisfying art or the one that has the most allure and i think right it does seem like that would be a lot of fun doesn't it yeah. be a rock star? it just seems fun you know maybe in ways it that does. sitting it like does. hunched over a keyboard or a notepad is but uh, i'm sure, it's, sure it's got its downsides but i just think that a lot of times people you know people who don't write but want to be writers or don't read but want to be writers come to writing as a last resort because they've sort of exhausted either in, in real life or in their minds, every other artistic Avenue or possibility. And finally it's like, okay, I'll, I'll do this. I can, I can write, I can write words. Well, and, and, and in a sense you have to congratulate them for not wanting to be actors. Right. At that point. <laughs> right. Cause you know, that's, that's, that's the, that's the, the first most thankless uh, chore. I think that a young person can set herself. I'm going to be a famous actress. Like that is really the worst way. Um, to live, because, you know, there are all these brilliant actors out there and whatever who just never have any, they never get any traction, and their life is just a series of terrible auditions for commercials and stuff. And, oh. uh, and you know, that's worse, I think, than being a writer. That is the, that is the one creative choice like that that is actually worse. Well, the part, um, yeah, the thing about acting, like, two things there is, like, one, you have to get permission to do it. Someone's got to tell you yes, whereas, like, with writing, no one has to tell you yes. You can at least do the thing. But, like, someone's got to give you an acting job. Unless you want to start doing like guerrilla theater on the corner. And then two, and this is sort of scary, it's, it speaks to what you were just saying. When I was teaching, uh, I was at Santa Monica College and I, w- I was teaching like creative writing classes, but also like just straight up comp classes with a broader student body. And I would ask my students like, you know, what do you guys want to be? And uh, almost like a, a majority of them in the room wanted to be famous actors. I'm not even kidding you. And I know that has something to do with <laughs> I it. believe you. It's crazy. I believe you. Part of Especially it is Los Especially in Santa Monica. Come right. on. I mean, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But it also, just, I was looking at them going, oh my God, like this is it. And, you know, this was the time when, you know, asking students of that age what their favorite books were, like four of the 10 were Harry Potter books. And these are 18 year olds and, not to knock Harry oh my Potter. God, so not, depressing. Not, so to depressing. Knock, not to knock Harry Potter, you know, too hard because I think it, you know, it's great. It's done great things for young people reading. And those are, you know, I haven't read them. I got to confess, but like I have looked at them and I've read about them. And I think that like, you know, you can do worse. You can do much worse. As a you could person. do worse. You could do worse. I mean, I actually don't think it's great writing or anything. I mean, even because I, you know, I love children's literature. Yeah. Um, and I read the first four. I can say that I read the first four and then I became weary because I, I got the sense that the, the editing had been poor. That there was a poor editorial hand in it all. Um, but you know, it's not. It's not C.S. Lewis. It's not Philip Pullman. You know, it's not that good. But but even that there's magic in it, I think is good. I mean, I think magic is good for for children. 
young people. But, you know, you shouldn't stop at Harry Potter if you're 18. Come on. That's what I'm saying. Really? Yeah, it needs, it needs, yeah, yeah really? I, the thing is, is that, like, it's not that it's not even that they chose those books. It's that I think they just chose those books because there was those the only books they knew of. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, that was right. I know. I was like, I don't think they really had any knowledge of other books, though I could be wrong. Um, so before, no, I think I, that's right. before I let you go, I want to ask a couple of questions that um, I really want to hear you answer um, about your own work. Uh, the first of which uh, deals with conception. And how you conceive of your novels, because uh, your books, more so than maybe most, seem to involve big ideas, and they seem to have uh, philosophical sweep in, in ways that maybe the more, um, you know, personality-driven or navel-gazing novels might have. Do you know what I'm saying? And so, what it makes me wonder is where you begin, because I think uh, with other writers who write other kinds of books, they might start with a character or a name or a title or a single visual image. And what I wonder is like, are you starting with a big question or does it start smaller than that with one of these other things? And then do the big questions then emerge through the course of creation? So a couple of things. Um, thank you. That's kind of you to say a couple of those things. Um, uh, but you know, I do. So now when I was younger, I started with calculations. Like I was, I would structure a book ahead of time and think of, just think of sort of the shape of it and how I wanted the sort of plot, alleged plot, to unspool and stuff. And now uh, that I'm the ripe old age of 43, I don't go like that at all. I just start with a blank screen and I write whatever I want to. And um, that's all I do. I mean, it's very simple-minded. It's very simple-minded. And I sort of think of where I want to end up, but where I want to end up isn't, philosophical exactly it's sort of an emotional texture tone or something that I want to end the book on and then I start the book thinking of that thinking of that emotional texture of the ending so that's I mean it's just very simple I, I think um, so wait so let, let, me just, let, let, me, let me just try to drill down so when you say you're moving towards an emotional texture that that means that you don't necessarily know what happens at the end you just have kind of an intuitive sense of how you want the end to feel Right, that's exactly right. Yeah, I have no idea what's going to happen in the book, who's in the book, nothing of the particulars. And then you start writing, and uh, there's a certain voice that comes up, and everything um, follows from that, ideally. Uh, but it does usually for me. Um, it does usually. I just sort of, I think that it's sort of automatic writing that I do these days. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I feel that way sometimes, but I, I'm not because I don't calculate anything and I don't plan anything. And um, so, how do you achieve, how do you achieve a, how do you achieve a continuity from day to day? You read the previous day's work and then get rolling. Is that what you do, or you just yeah yeah no that is how I get rolling. Except that that's very hard for me these days with uh, with my schedule and my work. Um, but that is how I used to go, and it's how I go on a good day now. Um, do you realize? But yeah, sometimes it takes so much time to 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 go back. By the time that you've sort of reimmersed yourself in whatever the language is that you wrote before, it's already time for you to go get your kids to school. Yeah. Um, so that's my problem right now. Yeah. See, you know what? <laughs> and it is a problem. I just want you to know that there are there are thousands of people listening to this who are just feeling great shame at all the bullshit excuses they have for not getting work done, and you're like hammering these things out in like a half an hour in between like work and like picking up your kids. It's amazing. But it is tricky. I mean, cause you can't, uh, there's a book I'm working on now where for the first time in many years, 
I have to go back and look at it and sort of uh, cut and paste and think about how it's working and stuff. And I hate that. Yeah. I just don't like that. I like just sitting down and writing. And if I didn't have the kind of schedule that I have, I could do that still. But I can't for the past, I don't know, three years or something. Um, maybe since maybe since my divorce or something, not to be too personal, but uh, I just, it, it's it's so hard to, I don't know. It, it just it seems like a lot of the time is spent picking up where you left off. And then by the time you're picking up sufficiently to actually write something, again, you know, the bell's ringing and you have to go. You just said, you actually have a bell. Please tell me you have a bell. I wish I had an actual bell, <laughs> but it's say. the bell of like, yeah, looking at that little clock on my, on the, uh, in the top right hand corner of my Mac and, yeah. and it says that I have to pick up my child in 10 minutes. That'll do it. Okay, so last question, and then, and then I will uh, I will let you go off into your day. Um, but research, uh, when you're writing a place, do you have to see it? Uh, like, do you have to go, um, or does it differ from place to place? You know, and, and sometimes you go, and sometimes you can work from books and images and internet and video. Like, how, how do you do it? Yeah, you know, the the I mean, most often my books are set in Southern California, but they're not always. Like the one I'm working on now, that's so hard, is set in Alaska and Maine. Um, and I've spent a little time in both, but not enough to really know what I'm talking about. Some books that I've written, like there's one called O Pure and Radiant Heart, which is about the um, atom bomb physicist and Oppenheimer and so forth, for those of your listeners who haven't read it. Um, so that one, I had to go to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and I went to the um, the Trinity sites, and I went to Los Alamos uh, in New Mexico, where the bomb was developed. And uh, so I went to all these and the Nevada test site, I, I went, or Nevada, I guess I should say, because um, people from Nevada say Nevada. Um, but so I went to all those places for that book, and I did a lot of sort of just primary research where I was there. But usually I just write vaguely from memory in the most loose and, and sort of um, freewheeling and non-factual, almost liarish way. Well, that's, that's, what, that's, that's what we do. We lie. <laughs> <laughs> we do. We lie, and I love it. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, it's been great talking with you. Uh, congratulations on all of your success and on the new book. And uh, just thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. You're a great interviewer. Okay, guys, that does it. That is all for now. That is Lydia Millet. What a great conversation that was. Uh, go get her new novel. It is called Magnificence. It's out there now in hardcover from W.W. W. Norton and Company. You can find Lydia online at LydiaMillet.net, and she is also on the Facebook. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And, hey, if you like the program, please go rate it and review it on iTunes. It takes approximately 90 seconds to do this. And it really does help the cause. Just go to iTunes, find the show, rate it, review it, done. Uh, and hey, if you don't have the uh, official app for the program, the official Other People app, please get that as well. It is free. You can get it in the App Store or at the Android Marketplace. You can access all episodes via the app. New episodes are automatically uploaded or uh, downloaded or whatever. You can save episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. You can also access premium content from the archives, etc. It is an elegant way to listen to the show. Uh, closing thoughts, the novel, my manuscript, my current creative conundrum. I think what I'm going to do uh, in December for this month, I think I'm just going to read. I'm going to read a lot of books. I'm going to stay away from my book, and I'm just going to pack my head with as many good novels as I can. And uh, while doing so, 
compare myself unfavorably to the masters. And then in the new year, I guess I will reassess. And, uh, you know, it's always possible too, that this chest cold is affecting my self-perception. It's entirely possible. And, uh, maybe, uh, the consumption is having an impact. Please remember that Eleanor Deuce died of pneumonia in Pittsburgh and that Baudelaire often wore pink gloves. That is all for now. Uh, I'll be back again soon with another writer and another conversation, another episode of this uh, strange program. Thank you for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you for spreading the word and letting people know about it. Thank you uh, for helping to perpetuate book culture because that is what we're doing here. We are perpetuating culture, and we are doing so collectively as one large organism. It is as though we are rowing a giant boat. Do you want to hear me cough? Do you want proof of this? Do you want proof of my consumption? Here we go.